Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. The thing is, y'all, we're doing these parables from the sort of middle to end section of Luke's gospel, and they started out funny. They were whimsical. They deserved flamingos and, I don't know, plastic balls and that pink thing, whatever that is. I don't know what that is. It's a dachshund. But I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Actually, I think Remy broke it to you last week. They're getting less funny as we go. And so for tonight in our series called Tell It Slant, we'll hear Jesus' story from Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 28. As they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to get royal power for himself and then return. He summoned 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 pounds, which is not a lot of money, more than they would have had as enslaved persons, but you know, a tidy sum, and said to them, do business with these until I come back. But the citizens of his country hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. When he returned, having received royal power, he ordered these slaves to whom he had given the money to be summoned so that he might find out what they had gained by trading. The first came forward and said, Lord, your pound has made 10 more pounds. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been trustworthy in a very small thing. Take charge of 10 cities. Then the second came saying, Lord, your pound has made five pounds. And he said to him, and you rule over five cities. Then the other came saying, Lord, here is your pound. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth for I was afraid of you because you are a harsh man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. You knew, did you, that I was a harsh man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money into the bank? Then when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. He said to the bystanders, take the pound from him and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 pounds. I tell you, to all those who have, more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. After Jesus had said this, 
he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Go to the search bar in amazon.com and type in chicken blinders and see what comes up. Okay, I'll just tell you. What comes up are dozens of options for ordering little plastic doodads that are right-sized for the average chicken beak, made to clip on and stay on so that the chicken cannot see what's right in front of her. She can still see peripherally well enough to eat and drink, but she can't aim her beak at something directly in front of her with any accuracy. What I did not always know about chickens is that they can be brutal to each other, pecking each other with their sharp beaks, drawing blood from their sisters, gouging out each other's eyes, breaking eggs, just generally raising hell in the coop, even when there's plenty of room and food and water for all the chickens. They're just kind of instinctively mean to each other. Anybody who keeps chickens knows it, that when you add a few new ones to your flock, you have to sneak them in. You have to introduce them gradually, hoping to trick the old-timer chickens into thinking the newcomers have been there all along. There's an art to it, and the little plastic chicken blinders can help. They save all the chickens a great deal of violence and pain. Here's why I'm telling you this. Because every metaphor has its limits. And because everything we say about God is a metaphor. For example, we are more aware now than we used to be that calling God our Father who art in heaven can be painful for some people whose own dads were assholes or absent or appalling in a thousand other ways that some fathers screw up their paternal responsibility. In response to this new-ish understanding, churches like ours have been more careful about calling God our Father, painting a fuller picture of God's relationship to us by incorporating a fuller range of biblical metaphors for the deity. Mother-Father, we said tonight in the Lord's Prayer, trying, however imperfectly, to convey a broad parental metaphor for the way we relate to God as children. Still problematic if your parents suck, but perhaps rehabilitative if we let God's own way of parenting us redefine what parenthood looks like at its best. About the chickens, at least once Jesus called himself the mother hen of his religious kin, naming his, her, impulse, to protect and nurture and warm his, her, little chicks under his, her, broad wing. See Luke 13, 34. The gender-bending chicken metaphor for Jesus expands our imaginations beyond the more ubiquitous and class-conscious declaration, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is chicken, not only redefines how Jesus is in our imaginations, but also asks us to reconsider how we might be called to use our own authority, wherever we have some, to protect and nurture 
rather than aspiring to the aristocracy of bossing our subordinates around. That's lordship. And also, with chickens, it's all protection and nurture until one of them pecks out another one's eye and eats it. See, the metaphor has its limits. Now, Luke has heard this story that Jesus used to tell about somebody important going on a trip, leaving enslaved persons in charge of his stuff, and then coming back. Matthew has got Jesus telling that same story in the Gospel of Matthew, or at least a story with the same bones as Luke's story. There's an important man, there's some long-distance travel, enslaved persons entrusted as stewards, some of them making a good profit, and one of them just too scared to try. And that's the one we're more familiar with, Matthew's version. In Matthew's imagination, Jesus is focusing more on the stewards in the story. He makes it pastoral for all of us who have been waiting a long damn time for all of God's promises to be fulfilled, and instructional for what we should do while we wait. We should take risks. We should invest our talents. We should do good work on Jesus's behalf until he comes back. Many a sermon on the Matthew 25 version of this story has inspired church people to sign up for church work so as not to squander our talents. It's useful like that. But that's not for tonight. Luke's version of this story it's different. The plot finds its focus not so much with the stewards left behind, but with the traveling and returning nobleman whose trip is not for business, but rather to get royal power for himself. Meaning he's going to petition the Roman emperor for the title of king in his neck of the woods. Rome was always happy to have ethno-regional kings in place throughout their conquered territories as part of their system for managing the people whose land and resources they were plundering. So, for real, in the contemporary political history of Jesus and his kin, Herod the Great had petitioned Mark Antony and the Roman Senate after first befriending Antony's wife, Cleopatra, it was a whole thing, to name him, Herod, king of Judea. And the Senate said, sure, despite the vociferous objections of the Jews who did not think Herod was all that great, the very ones he intended to rule. Just a few decades later, after the Roman Senate had come apart and Rome had returned to the autocratic government of an empire, Herod the Great's sons petitioned the new emperor, Caesar Augustus, for their own kingships and territories. All three of Herod the Great's sons were eventually given fiefdoms over which they could be called king, despite, this time, a literal revolt in the streets by the citizens of those territories to decry the cruelty and abuse they would suffer under those leaders. Hey, it's not a democracy, Caesar told them, and established Herod the Great's sons 
First, Herod Archelaus, then later Herod Antipas and the Herod's brother Philip as kings who the emperor knew would do whatever it took to keep the so-called peace on behalf of the empire in their home territories. As it turns out, what the Herods and lots of other vassal kings under the empire's boot were really good at were two things, making money and murdering dissidents. Or really just one thing, right? Keeping power, which required more money and fewer enemies all the time. Okay, so back to Jesus's story. This nobleman, Reed Rich Guy, is planning a trip to a distant country, read Rome, to get power for himself, read promise anything, kiss any ass to gain status. He's rich already, but one of the rules of being rich is that you must always be getting richer. So if you're gonna be out of town, you make a plan to grow your accounts while you're gone. Now there's no stock market, there is no time for his financial agents to make a sizable profit the honest way by planting or building or investing in something good. In Luke's telling, this guy is making a quick turnaround trip. So Jesus's listeners would have, uh, would have understood. You can turn a little money into a lot of money fast, depending on what you're willing to do. Extortion, scheming, theft. You show your boss that you can play his game using power to get more power, because that's what he's looking for. And you want to be on his good side when he gets back because, well, because he's bad, bad Leroy Brown. He's the baddest man in the whole damn town. He'd sooner peck your eyes out than look at you if you're not useful to his acquisition of more. Jesus's listeners would have remembered how Herod the Great slaughtered those who favored a different candidate for king. How he ordered his soldiers to burn them out of their hiding places when they retreated. Extermination is the word Josephus, the first century historian used to convey how thorough Herod was in his determination to eliminate the opposition to his rule. Herod the Great, by the way, is the one who ordered the slaughter of the innocents the murder of all those baby boys, when rumors of Jesus' birth reached his palace. And Jesus' listeners would have remembered how Herod Archelaus, the first son of Herod the Great, slaughtered 3,000 worshipers in the temple courtyard because those Jews had pleaded with the emperor not to appoint someone so cruel to rule over them. And they would have remembered how Herod Antipas, the second son, had just recently beheaded John the Baptist for saying out loud that he should not have stolen his brother Philip's, the third son's, wife. Jesus' listeners would have known that opposing a king is a fool's game because kings are cruel and they will take what they want and what they always want is more and they will ruthlessly eliminate anyone who stands in their way of getting it. Now, Jesus had been traveling the countryside of his homeland for some seasons, saying with his words and demonstrating with his actions that the 
kingdom of God was near, was present, was among and within and for the sake of all those who followed him and trusted his teachings. I sometimes say that Jesus spoke of nothing else but the reign of God the future present reality, that God gets everything God wants, that God deposes all pretenders to the throne and establishes God's own empire among God's people. And as Luke's story moves Jesus closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem, the seat of power for that region, the people around Jesus are getting more and more excited about the possibility that is right around the corner. Remember Luke's introduction to this parable, chapter 19, verse 11? He went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, I know that we've all heard and digested the critique of Jesus's earliest followers, that they wanted and fully expected their Messiah to organize a political overthrow of the earthly powers that oppressed them. We have laughed condescendingly, almost anti-Semitically, at their tiny little vision, the reestablishment of the lineage of David, the Israelite king, the return of local glory to the capital city of Jerusalem, the theocratic alignment of religion and state so that God's will can be done in one tiny corner of the earth as it is in heaven by writ of government and supported by the taxation of the citizenry. I would caution that this critique is easier to make from the positions of privilege that many of us in this room occupy. When grinding poverty unto starvation, enforced by corrupt and greedy government, is not your lived experience. It might seem trifling to imagine the reign of God as a political and economic reality for which you hunger and thirst. The liberation theologies of Central America very much insist that religion that deals only in future justice is not worth their devotion. And to be honest, most of us are inconsistently committed to keeping God out of politics. From my position on the political left in this country, I have been appalled by the blatant conflation of so-called Christian values with U.S. American democracy, a governmental system that is supposed to protect us from the imposition of someone else's religious beliefs on our own moral agency. But I've also railed against public policy that chafes against my Christian convictions that love is love, or that every human body deserves health care, or that people who come from somewhere else should be welcome to share the bounty of this country's wealth. I'm saying I'm of two minds about God's reign taking hold in our society here and now. I want that as long as it looks like what I think it should look like. Which gets me back to Jesus' story about the newly appointed king returning to his now kingdom. First, he deals with the money. 
He expresses appreciation for the enslaved persons who produced extraordinary returns in a short time and doles out political power as a reward to them, in appreciation, no doubt, for their commitment to his greedy project. Now they too have lordship over towns and villages, land and resources within his domain. He expresses disappointment that not all his money made more money while he was gone. He waves away the fearful one who kept the money safe rather even than sticking it in a savings account to earn a teensy bit of interest. You're no good to me, he says, in front of everybody and takes the money away. No second chances here, but also no harsh punishment, just the humiliation of having squandered his chance to make good and having been judged worthless by the one with power to say how much he's worth. But quickly, the king in the story moves on to deal with the citizens who actively opposed his reign in the first place. There's no lecture, there's no finger wagging, no correction for them. He simply orders them rounded up, brought before him, and murdered in his presence. <clears throat> Exterminated, Josephus would have said. This king's reign will not be threatened by opposition, no matter how much blood he has to spill. I hear Jesus saying to the eager followers who are impatient for the fulfillment of God's reign, who are ready to declare Jesus their king and fight off anybody who says otherwise, that they should be careful with this metaphor. Because it is a metaphor. He will wear a crown, but it will draw blood from his own head, not from his enemies. He will not seek, nor will he be granted, political power. He will have no cities or lands to grant those who work with him. They will have no more money to invest then than they do now. In some ways, the reign of God that changes everything also changes nothing. The metaphor has its limits. Every metaphor does. And so I hear Jesus saying to us, to all his listeners in every age, be careful how you talk about God. Be aware that God is beyond the limits of human language. Be aware that our vocabulary carries baggage. Be aware that God is fully capable of being the kind of God we might say we want, all powerful, all available to bestow blessings on we who imagine ourselves to be on the king's good side, but that that kind of God is dangerous. And maybe we should in every age think again about how God is actually making God's self known in this world. Jesus told them this story, Luke says, because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. 
And by the time he had finished the story, the little story world was completely upended with unscrupulous former slaves rewarded with the rule of cities, the ones too timid and probably ethical to make fast money shoved out of the way as irrelevant to the king's project. And the blood of countless neighbors pooling under the listener's feet. And Jesus did not say, but he could have, is this what you had in mind? And after Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.